It was the dawn of the third age of podcasting, 30 years after the series had launched. The Babylon podcast was a dream given form. Its goal, to discuss the place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, home away from home for established fans, newbies, John, Blaine, and guests. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It could be a dangerous place. Wait, what? But it's our last, best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2024. The name of the podcast is... Babylon 5, 30 Years Later. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. Hello and welcome back to Babylon 5, 30 Years Later. This is a podcast retrospective look back at the show Babylon 5 on its 30th anniversary date. Mostly, because this episode's an exception. My name is John Wilson, and with me is my companion on this journey, Mr. Blaine Dowler. Hi, Blaine. Hello, John. How are you doing? I am here. It's, you know, it's dawn outside. I feel like the third age is starting, and I'm ready to start this journey. All right. And this is an interesting first step, because this is not just a Babylon 5 podcast. This is also Is It Jaws. So, obviously, we are going to be joined by Paul Spataro. Hello, everybody. Hey, Paul. Especially you two guys. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we've we talked before. We've done, we've done this before. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, but I was, um, you know, I totally forgot that Blaine and I had talked about doing this episode for an Is It Yours episode. And then when you invited me on here, I thought it was just because you enjoyed my company so much. It turns out uh, Blaine felt obligated to me. <laughs> it can be both. It can be both. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take both. That that works for me. I'm I'm really happy to be here. I, uh, as you know, I don't have the background with Babylon Five. I had not watched it, and I've always heard the comparisons to DS Nine, which we did listen to the prophets where we went over the whole series. So I've been curious about this show forever, well, or at least for a while. And uh, you know, I'm glad that you guys invited me because it gave me the incentive to sit down and at least watch this first episode and. You know, it's well worth well worth uh, the experience. There's another episode on the feed right now that is a zero episode where Blaine and I sort of talk about our experience with Babylon Five. So we're not going to spend a lot of time with that. Um, but Paul, you said you've never watched it before. This was your first blush with Babylon Five. Yes, the only thing I've ever you know seen is photos, you know, different screenshots, and I've always heard, obviously, that you know that there are many many similarities between this. And DS9 and, you know, the controversy of who stole what from whom, mm -hmm. you know, has, has been ongoing for many, many years. And I think that's something where I'm sure you're going to be delving into it as this show goes on and reaches its stride. So it's, it's going to be interesting. And I think I'm going to try and watch along with you as you do future episodes. This episode is also appearing in the Bureau 42 feed for Blaine's podcasts and my own John Reed's comics feed. So this episode is just really getting around. Cool. Hopefully a lot of people listen to it. Hopefully. We have decided to just release it in both of our master feeds that where we release all our shows and release it individually because this is not just a John show or a Blaine show. It's something we're doing together. Right. So um, 
to just kind of get right in. Actually, before we get into things, um, Paul, you mentioned that this is also going to be on the Is It Jaws. So for people who are not listening on the Is It Jaws feed, what is Is It Jaws? Is It Jaws is my movie review program, and it's me and either a co-host or several co-hosts in each episode, but that that is a fluctuating uh, dynamic between me and different people. And we review movies, miniseries, television shows, mostly movies, uh, 90% movies, but every once in a while we, we delve off the beaten path, and we rate things according to the Jaws scale, and just... I don't want to go too far afield, but the Jaws scale is basically Jaws 1, 2, 3, and 4, and it is not necessarily the equivalent of the quality of those films uh, once you get beyond Jaws, because Jaws is considered an all-time classic, so if we review something that we consider to be a classic, we rank it as Jaws. Jaws 2, which now is where we go away from the actual quality of the films that we're talking about, Jaws 2, for purposes of the show, is a Really, really solid movie worth rewatching, but not quite classic. Jaws 3 is a movie that was okay to watch, but, you know, nothing special. And Jaws 4 is a bad movie. And that's where we go. All right. Well, uh, next episode is going to be released on the 26th of January, 2024, which is 30 years after Midnight in the Firing Line. We decided to break the 30 years gap with this episode because... Otherwise, there'd be a year-long gap between our pilot and our fir- our first proper episode. So we're releasing this on 19th of January. And Blaine, you've read a lot. Did they do a retransmit of this a week before the show premiered? Not that I have found. They did a retransmit in Season 5 on P10 when they came up with a special edition. It aired immediately after in the beginning. Okay. So this originally came out in February. If they did a retransmit, I... I'm not aware of it. That doesn't mean they didn't do it, and it might have been broken into two. But most of us will have seen the special edition. That's what's available now. Mm-hmm. It is a bit different from the original broadcast, which we can get into a little bit, but it was originally aired with a nine-act structure instead of six to sell more ad time. It was edited with a little more emphasis on the idea that you know that it hadn't been confirmed that it was picked up, for a series run. When JMS was first told, you deliver the pilot on budget and on schedule, and you're going to go straight to series. And then they said, no, we're going to wait for the ratings to come in. And then the ratings came in and they cleared all those markers. They said, well, we're going to sort some other things out. So it was a few months before they got the green light to go to series. But there are some things that JMS regretted in the original edit that were corrected for the version that I believe most of us would have watched because the non-special edition it was only really available in the original broadcast, and I guess there was a brief um, streaming service that had it in, like, 2004 that took it down by 2012. I guess it wasn't streaming in 2004, but yeah, it was down by 2012. And it's out there. I know I've seen it within the last five years, but because there's, there's one element that we'll talk about when we get there that I distinctly notice as being different. But uh, but yeah, let's go ahead and get into this thing. Um, this is The Gathering. This is a, a pilot film that's, you know, worth two episodes as far as length goes. And it was originally aired on February 22nd, 1993. The director was Richard Compton. The writer is, of course, J. Michael Straczynski. So he is the showrunner and mastermind behind this whole thing. All right. Anything else before I get into the uh, description? 
I think that is the the main part of it, aside from mentioning director Richard Compton. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned him. He uh I don't recognize his name, but I don't pay a whole lot of attention to directors on stuff. So is he someone that y'all know from other things? Yeah, he's one that we know he he directed, you know, Welcome Home Soldier Boys Ransom, Dead Man's Curve. He did one episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. He actually acted in two episodes of the original Star Trek. And he's directed episodes of The X-Files, Charmed, Sliders, Miami Vice. Oh, he directed Haven on Star Trek The Next Generation. I, I, I think the directing on that was fine. I, I'm not a fan of the script. I don't think I really liked that episode that much, but that's okay. I'm not going to put it at his feet. I would, I would agree with you. I think that is a script-based failure. Yeah, so he's... He's not one of those guys where it's like, oh, they got him. There, you know, there's Emmys on the way, but he's also competent. So, okay. Well, I'm not going to do a whole lot of detail on the plot summary. I figure we can uh, remind the listeners of the main beats from this episode, and then talk about story details as they come up in our discussion. But Babylon Five is a dream given form. It's a station uh, that is getting ready to go into full operation. It's going to be a uh, sort of political node where ambassadors from the five major races of the current, whatever the galaxy level version of geopolitical landscape is, and they're still waiting for everyone to arrive. So as the story opens, we're still waiting for the fourth non-human ambassador to arrive. And still some personnel are coming on board as well. So we meet our various cast uh, cast members. We have uh, Takashima, who is the exec officer of the station. We have Michael Garibaldi, who's chief of security. We have, of course, Jeff Sinclair, who is the commander. And as the story opens, our telepath arrives on the station, Lita Alexander. Sinclair greets her at the doors. They have conversations about what rules are involved with telepathy on the station. There is a man who comes on board who, at first, he's just kind of like, oh, why are we looking at that guy? But he turns out to be a a major player in this episode. His name is Garner, I think. Varner. Del Varner? Yeah. Yeah. Del Varner, yes. Right. So, um, let's see. Major things that happen. Del Varner arrives... The amb- the ambassador who has not yet arrived, he is from a race known as the Vorlons, and no human has ever seen a Vorlon. So when he arrives, it's uh, a bit of a surprise because he's very early, and he, uh, when we first see him, he's completely encased in a sort of armor and um, regalia getup. We can't see any of his actual physical form. But um, whenever the commander goes to greet him at the door, and they're supposed to all be there to greet him, he is held up in the lift. There is a um, a delay. There's some sort of malfunction. So he finally gets there, and security is there, but not all the ambassadors are there. One of our ambassadors, a Mr. If I were looking at the names, that's the Londo. Mm-hmm. What's Londo's last name? Malari. Malari. Londo Malari is not present. He's out gambling and talking to Del Varner. They find that Ambassador Kosh from the Vorlons has been knocked unconscious. 
They take him to sick bay. They're trying to figure out how to examine him because they're not allowed to crack open his case or anything. There's a lot of little plot details along the way that I feel like I'm just skipping over. We'll come back to them. Like uh, the commander has an old flame come to the station. And because of all the stuff that gets held up with the ambassador, he's not able to meet her the way he wanted to. And she's sort of a sounding board for him through the course of the episode. They continue to investigate the unconsciousness. They discover that the ambassador was poisoned. The telepath breaches protocol completely in cahoots with the doctor and the exec officer. They all decide that for the sake of galactic peace, they're going to actually examine this guy contrary to cultural norms, contrary to what the Vorlon government has stated. Because if there's a murder or if there's any sort of shenanigans, all of the efforts for peace could fall apart. So they decide to, without talking to the commander, crack open his shell. The doctor actually sees a Vorlon and is horrified by it. The telepath goes into his mind and we see through the Vorlon's eyes that Commander Sinclair did greet him at the station doors. And in the course of shaking hands, put a a skin tab, like a, a poisoned a, adhesive on the back of his hand, which, you know, knocked him out and is in the process of killing him. So once they discover this, the doctor is able to isolate where the poison hit the body and start treating him so that he's no longer dying from poison. But now there's a big a murder investigation during the second half of the episode because they all think that Commander Sinclair was the one who did the attack. Through the course of the episode, through the course of shenanigans, we find that one of the other ambassadors, Delenn, who is of the Minbari people, who we were at war with 10 years ago, uh, one of, um, no, let me not say it that way because that kind of goes right to the end. They find that somebody has been wearing a chameleon net, a sort of shape-changing ability, and has been going around the station pretending to be different people, pretending to be Delvarner, pretending to be security, pretending to be Sinclair, pretending to be the telepath, all these different things. And they're the ones who actually greeted them at the station. And they have been in contact with... A <laughs> I did this all the wrong way. And as they track this person down and find them, Sinclair attacks him. And it turns out that the person was a member of the Minbari race. Working with the, are they called the the Narns? Yes, the Narns. The Narns to undermine all of the peace efforts. And so they were trying to kill the ambassador. They were trying to disrupt Earthman-Bari relations. They were trying to just basically throw Babylon 5 under the bus from the very beginning. Having resolved this mystery, the uh, Vorlons are no longer angry. Um, they had brought an entire fleet to attack in retribution for their ambassador being attacked, uh, but they leave happy. They can't pin the Narn ambassador down with any evidence of underhanded dealings, but the, the commander knows that he was involved. And we basically end the episode with, okay, shaky start. The Babylon 5 is now open for business, fully operational, and um, yeah, ready to go. So that was kind of a rambling synopsis. I'll be better prepared for the next one because I thought I could do better with this one. But there we go. I think you hit a lot of the, the key points. If we're looking at this as an independent movie, so had it not been picked up, you hit everything that's vital. Right. I think we'll discuss it at that level. 
And then before the end, I will collect it and say, okay, because it got picked up for series and because the series was planned so extensively, stick a pin in this and this and this and this and this. So we mentioned this was a special presentation. I saw that when it first came up and I was like, oh, wait a second. There were two versions of this. We already kind of talked about that. One of the things that I noticed from the special presentation. So, Paul, you remember the bit where the commander is showing Lita Alexander to her quarters? Yes. And they're getting ready to go through the alien sector and they gas mask up. Right. And then basically you get like 20 seconds of dialogue and then they take off the masks and they're at her quarters. That was a much more elaborate situation in the original. They had like sort of um, various aliens with puppets and prosthetics and that sort of thing. And it was supposed to be like, oh, look at all the different alien races. But people tend to refer to it as a zoo scene because it just kind of feels like you're parading past all of these creatures that don't really have any character to them. They're just cool looking aliens. It sounds to me like they might have been better off if they had just had as they're walking through the area with the masks on, have some creature of some sort there. Not not a uh, menagerie of mm-hmm. creatures, but just one, maybe two. Uh, just to show that this area was being, you know, you know, maintained in the way it was for their either ability to survive or comfort or whatever it may be. But, you know, all they did, at least in the version that I watched, was, it, unless I missed something, all they did was walk through an empty area, and then they closed the door, and they took off their masks. And it did, right. you know, I, I mean, you can kind of extrapolate and understand what, what it is they're doing, but I do think it lost some of its charm that it could have had if you had seen just a little something. But I also understand that mm-hmm. if they overpopulated the area, it would have that zoo feeling to it, and you don't want to do that either. Mm-hmm. The, you know, one of the things I did take note of consciously was how quickly, once they walked through, they were able to take the masks off. And I was thinking, well, shouldn't they have to have something where, like, you know, once you open the door and you close it, that you have to have some sort of, like, a system to clear out whatever air or whatever that came in? Yeah, you would expect kind of an airlock section. And Yeah, and, and then, you know, and a quick vacuum sound or something, and then they come through again and, you know... You understand how it's safe. Now, it could just be that, no, I was, my mind was totally off there saying it could just be some sort of gravitational thing or whatever, but no, because then you wouldn't put on masks. So, you know, that, that would have just made more sense to me. It probably would have added another five, six seconds to the scene, and I don't know if they wanted to do that. Plus, it probably would have added another couple of thousand dollars in special effects or maybe more, maybe more than a couple of thousand. I don't know. Yeah, it would have driven up the production costs, but yeah, as, the main reason that that was shortened, as John said, the feedback they got from the fans was that it felt more like a zoo, and JMS felt that it was way too smoky in the methane breather area, so he wanted to redesign it for this the series, and they did. So that was removed from the special edition to make it more consistent. And that's the main thing that was removed. Most of the rest, there was things that were tightened up. So they freed up 14 minutes of time just by tightening up the editing, because it was very slow-paced in the original broadcast, and that allowed them to put in 14 minutes of footage that mattered for the long term, like Dr. Kyle talking to Dr. Takashima after it was all said and done about how, you know, once you've seen the face of a Vorlon, you're, you know, the world is, or it's like the universe has changed for him now that he's seen what's inside that suit. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those were the, the key things we could talk about 
don't know if we want to do it now or in the next episode. We can talk about which cast members stay from week to week or stay for the long run of the series and which ones don't. But there are going to be some changes coming. Uh, yeah, we can we could probably do that at the end of, of the discussion of this episode. So I don't know how I want to approach the discussion. I have like little, you know, thoughts about little beats all along the way. Um, like, for example, when we first zoom in on the bridge of the station in the first opening shot, it reminded me of the cage from yes. Star Trek. How I zoomed on the bridge of the Enterprise. I had the same same exact observation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was just neat to get that sort of orientation to how things are on the station and seeing um, Laurel Takashima there was, was, was a cool scene. Yeah, and the observation dome that she's in is one of the few places that has artificial gravity. That's one of the things that would have been discussed in that so-called zoo scene that was cut is how the different regions of Babylon 5 have different atmospheres for the different breathers, and they will actually spin the station at different rates in the different sections to simulate different gravities. Right, because the majority of the station is a cylinder, and it's doing like the rendezvous with Rama thing, where it's like rotating on its axis, but it's in sections, so the different sections can rotate at different uh, velocities and generate different simulated gravities. Interesting. I've been in a bit of a, a Dune mindset for the last few months, especially with the film coming out and everything. So I noticed that they mentioned this is dust, not spice. Mm-hmm. The drug smuggling. Because they, they capture a drug smuggler at the very beginning of the episode. It's kind of, just kind of a one-off thing to show, you know, how Sinclair handles justice on his station. That's one of its purposes. We also need to put a pin in the existence of a drug named dust because it comes up later. This was okay. cut from the original broadcast. And I think I've been reading ahead in the scripts because JMS released 15 volumes of his scripts, three volumes of scripts by other people after they agreed to. There's a whole series of Babylon 5 books in these formats, and I've got the overwhelming majority of them. But reading ahead, I haven't rewatched the episode, but I think they actually will reuse that footage later because the existence of Dust as a Drug is going to be part of a storyline down the road. There are elements here. Some of them were actually going to pay off in very late season five. They will now pay off a little bit sooner because there was a time when JMS didn't think they were going to get a season five. But anyone who says, no, it's not planned the way they said it was. Oh, yes, it was. (laughs) (laughs) The evidence is there. And he's actually published the original Bible and the original outlines now that it's all said and done. Well, let's talk about Sinclair for a minute. Paul, what were your thoughts on Jeff Sinclair as a commander here? Uh, my first initial thought was, I, you know, you, you're just getting the surface, obviously, and I figured, you know, we, we were going to have to get deeper. But I thought that he seemed to be relatively strong. Uh, I liked the way he dealt with that situation with the dust smuggler. I did end up looking, you know, him up because I was not familiar with the actor. And I was a little saddened to find out what his fate is, not on the show, but in real life. But I, I found him to be kind of intriguing, and I was, in, you know, he, to to put it in its barest form, he felt Star Trekian to me. I could see him as a commander of a of a uh, of a Star Trek series, and to me, that that is almost the, you know, something something that that they they needed to have. He needed to have, to have a strong presence, and I thought he did. Mm-hmm. But you know, I I also felt like we needed to see him be developed more over time. You know, we only again we only got to scratch the surface. And certainly, they they layer him with a lot of mystery yes. in this. They, he's 
what little bits we get of maybe an overarching show mystery is centered around him, what happened at the the end of the war, and what well, we can get back to that conversation, I guess. Uh, but it's to me, he's he's one of the major focal points of the story. I liked his blend of stern when he has to be, but mostly human and approachable. There were some pits that maybe came off a little bit hokey, but it was more of just, you know, they could have done another take on that and not really that big of a deal. Uh, okay. Finish your thought and then remind me about doing another take. Oh, like which, which ones I thought should do another take? No, there's... I, I'll cover it now. When they were putting together the special edition, they found out that the way Warner Brothers had these stored, a lot of the original film negatives had been eaten by rats or water damaged. Oh, wow. So some of the takes we see in the special edition were not the preferred takes because the preferred takes no longer existed. Gotcha. Okay, so whenever they're sitting around talking about what they know about the Vorlons, and he's like, you know, culture, social order, like, that was the end of a beat. He should have come back and then, like, with a humorous jibe, do they go to bed on the first date or whatever? But instead it just kind of feels like it's just rolling off, I don't know, that particular thing I would have said, okay, play that last line a little bit differently if I had been directing it. But of course we can play back, you know, backseat director all day long. Yeah, it is a little different. Compton is going to return to direct five more episodes of the series, but they are all in season one. Gotcha. So Laurel Takashima, the actress I had known from The Karate Kid Part 2, where I had a huge crush on her as a young young me <laughs> and she plays a very different character in this side note the uh, one interesting habit about changing japanese names into anglicized pronunciations is a lot of times we will start emphasizing the syllables that have the least emphasis in japanese so like her name in japanese would be takashima the she would be very very reduced and we bring that as Takashima. We do it with lots of other words too, like Yakuza is, is Yakuza in a lot of pronunciations. But anyways, I know that pronunciations shift over time. And just because she's of Japanese descent doesn't mean that her name has to be pronounced the way we pronounce in Japanese. That's, that's totally fine. Just a little thing I noticed there. Mm -hmm. But I really, really like her. And what did y'all think about Takashima? I didn't walk away with a really strong feeling on her one way or the other. I thought she seemed like she could turn into an interesting character, but I didn't feel like I had enough exposure to her to know for sure yet. You know, I mean, I didn't know her from The Karate Kid too. I actually only uh, came into contact with her when she uh, made a, when she reprised that role on Cobra Kai, which is more recent than this, obviously. So, you know, she she was there and I, Thought she could be interesting, but I didn't really have a strong feeling. She is one of the cast members who doesn't return. In this case, she was not happy with her performance here. The network, when they got the finished product, said, oh no, she's too tough, soften her up, and made her re-record all of her lines to make them softer. And then the critics and the audiences were not happy with her performance. She was not happy with her performance. The special edition retur returns her original line readings. So it is better that way. 
and a little bit of the plot spoilers. She was an element of the mystery. When our Minbari scans his way into Delvarner's quarters, it's a blink-and-you'll-miss-it thing, but Laurel Takashima's name is the one that comes up on the grid that lets him in. She was off-duty when they discovered the power drains and the oxygen. She was the only core cast member who did not directly interact with the Changeling, and JMS later revealed in the news groups, because she had left, that they couldn't follow up on it. But she was the unwilling, or she was the participant on the inside who had covered up the tubes. So that's one of the reasons that Sinclair was so suspected is his alibi didn't hold up because there's no record of the delay in the tube. She would have been the one that did that. What JMS hadn't revealed in that post is whether or not she was a willing participant, but she was going to be a big part of that. So we'd have learned a lot more about her. Whereas what we learned here is that, you know, the, her one personal conversation starts off with, with us finding out that she was breaking the rules by having coffee on there and ends with her saying, oh, I haven't broken the rules in a long time. Sure, let's get the telepath in. Interesting. Okay, I hadn't connected some of those dots. Whenever you said that one of the people who left had been part of the mystery, I would have guessed Lita Alexander because she does not come back either. Not immediately. Right. But it the, some of the departures, so she leaves, they replace the doctor and... There's a recurring role that gets replaced, and one of the actors we see here returns in a different role. But those are the main ones, and it actually worked out well for the story that everyone who had actually seen Kosh or the Vorlon without the suit ended up not coming back for the pilot. So some of them, <laughs> said, uh, yeah, Takashima did not return. Sounds like partly on her own choice because she wasn't happy with her performance. Pat Tallman didn't return immediately because her new agent tried to play a little too hardball, knowing that JMS wrote the role with her in mind, not knowing that Warner Brothers didn't want her in it because the overwhelming majority of her credits were in stunt work and not acting work, and they wanted a more experienced actress. So when JMS was out of town working on other Babylon 5 things, and the agent played hardball and said, okay, we're going to walk, instead of having them come back with a higher uh, offer, the network said, okay, and they brought someone else in. And then Dr. Kyle, everyone was happy with his performance, but they just found he didn't really gel in the ensemble the way they wanted him to. I like Dr. Kyle. I feel like we lost a little something with him whenever he leaves, but it's fine. You know, you make your choices when you go from pilot to series. So let's see. Yeah, we have Sinclair. He, uh, he's our commander. He has the mystery. He was, he was involved in the war, the Earthman Bari War 10 years ago. Uh, we have the, I forget her rank. We have Takashima. Is she lieutenant commander? Lieutenant commander. Lieutenant commander. We don't get a whole lot of her backstory beyond the, um, you know, having to stick to the rules and how she basically moved up through her, through her career and had a hard time doing that until she met Sinclair. So Sinclair sort of was a little bit of a savior figure in her life. So she, we, we get the feeling that she owes him. Yeah. From time when she was working that involved the Mars riots, we will hear about those again. Okay, the Mars riots. Michael Garibaldi, he's our chief of security. He plays a major role in this because there's so much of it that involves looking into the murder investigation. The main thing we find out about him is that his career history is a bit spotty and, you know, he has demonstrated some unreliability in the past. Did they say that he was having drinking problems or did I just infer that from what they said? 
Yeah, they don't indicate what his problems were, just that he was bouncing from post to post. Okay. But um, Sinclair has faith in him. We get the feeling, or I got the feeling, that they knew each other. And so Sinclair brought him on both out of confidence professionally and out of personal concern, maybe, to give him a place where he can succeed. And so they, they have a they have a tight-knit relationship. You can tell whenever the suspicion turns on Sinclair that Garibaldi doesn't want to believe it, but also has a job to do and has to follow the evidence. Yeah, and it's nice. It's a nice character beat for Garibaldi that he is planning on doing that. So, Paul, did you have any thoughts on him? My my thoughts on him. Well, first of all, I I, I don't know why, but I kind of focused uh, on his uh, interaction with is it uh, Malari, Lando Malari. For some reason, when when they were talking, I seemed more focused on Garibaldi. He struck me as just somebody who's going to be very important in the show. He seemed like one of the key characters. He felt like, you know, again, just bringing it to, you know, to the Star Trek world, he, he felt like he was going to be part of the, uh, the main group. Like, you know, when, when we talk about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, he felt like he was going to be one of those. So he felt very significant to me as I was watching it. And I thought he, I thought he had a commanding presence on the screen. So, you know, he, he I, I would, I was interested in seeing where they're going to go with him. Yeah, and that is, that's a good thing to hear, because if, when I was asked in other groups, you know, what were, what would be my picks for the five greatest character arcs in all of TV history, which five characters have had the most development, Londo, Jakar, and Garibaldi all make the list. Hmm, interesting. Nice. So, yes, they they definitely will be doing things with him. Well, that gives us a nice segue into into uh, Londo. Londo Bellari is an interesting person. He, you know, when I'm when I'm living my life in the mid to late '90s, and TV ads are coming on while I'm watching TV in Babylon Five, Londo's hair <laughs> is one of those things that I always remember from the ads. And just like Babylon Five is the show with that guy who has the hair, his look and Jakar's look. Just were always very, very, you know, memorable to me. When I first watched this, I found Londo obnoxious. But watching through it again, you know, within the last month and then the f- couple of episodes I rewatched after this, I really like him. Like, he has an interesting depth to him that I had not picked up on the first time I tried to watch this show a few years ago. But... You know, he, he has the accent and he has the look and he has the sort of flamboyance that are a little bit off-putting. But if you let yourself look past that and pay attention to his scenes, he's able to be more than that. I really, really like Londo. I had a similar initial feeling based on the hair and all, and I kind of thought, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to even lie. It's one of the things that when I've heard over the years, you know, yeah, the show, show is worth watching. I was like, oh, that guy just looks so stupid. <laughs> like, it really just annoyed me, the hair look. But anyway, uh, as as I was watching it, I, I was thinking there's something familiar about this guy. And it turns out I'm, I'm currently doing a, uh, actually, it's a first time through, but I'm watching uh, Hill Street Blues from the uh, 80s. And he played a mm-hmm. character on there, Peter Jurassic, called Sid the Snitch. And he was... Just as obnoxious, if not more so, but but very interesting and somebody who you know you, you focus on as you're watching it. 
So with that as a background, I just found it real, even more interesting to kind of just look at him and try and see underneath the makeup and, and, you know, get the character beats out of him. And I, I thought he, he definitely has potential to be a very significant character as far as I'm concerned. You know, I, I'm, I, I don't know exactly where they came up with that look with the hair and everything, but it, you know, at least it's, it's a way of them doing something to make somebody look alien, alien-ish without having to break the budget, you know, and, and I, I did find, you know, I bring it, I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to keep going Star Trek here, but a lot of times on Star Trek, when it came time to make an alien, it was like, okay, just, you know, put, put, put some ridges about his nose. Okay. He's alien. This, this was a way of doing it where, you know, they probably didn't, again, have to pay all that much money for makeup on it and everything, but it was really just kind of cool looking and very just different. So I, I kind of like that. And again, I just found him as a, as a character who seemed like he could be fascinating over time. And it was also a somewhat accidental look when they were doing the makeup test. They had it in a ridge and just kind of half jokingly, the hairdresser pulled the hair on the wig straight out. And said, well, you know, what if we do this? And it was not as pronounced as it is here. It was out, but it was shorter. And Straczynski was walking by and, you know, asked Peter Jurisic, well, how do you feel about that? Because he wanted the actors comfortable. And not knowing Peter Jurisic well enough to know what he's being sarcastic, Jurisic said, oh, I, I love it. We should triple it, make it just absolutely huge and spread it out. And Jameis said, okay, and kept on walking before it even could refute it. So <laughs> that became the hair. And they do eventually turn it into a status symbol within the Centauri. So the amount or the length of that hair ridge is a sign of where they are in society. So we will see them with, you know, people above him in the food chain who have much wider hair. And when his assistant Veer shows up very shortly, um, it's got, he's got shorter hair in it. So Okay. Okay. So that explains the shorter hair then. Interesting. Let's do a little bit of background in the Centauri race. So they, they used to be an empire. It's like the Roman empire after the fall of Rome. I was also wondering if they were talking about like, like maybe post imperial Russia. I, I, I didn't know if they were going for that with it. Cause he also has kind of like the sort of vaguely Eastern European accent. It could be. There's, there's a little bit of that. We should actually talk more about Peter Jurassic's history in season two, because a new cast member joined season two. They have had three projects together. This is the first time they'd actually met. So, because Peter Jurisic was also in Tron and Scarecrow and Mrs. Kane. But season two is still a long ways away. It's not even yeah. who that is yet. Okay. Yeah. So, in any rent, um, yeah. So the Centauri used to have a vast empire and they had, we'll call them oppressed the Narn. Jakar is very clear that they were never slaves because their spirit was never broken. But there's a lot of bad blood between the Centauri and the Narn and translates into Londo and Jakar. Mm -hmm. So Jakar is part of the, the Narn species, which are somewhat reptilian. And there's a moment where they say that they are the youngest of the five races and the Minbari are the oldest. Um, the Vol Vorlons are mysterious in there. We don't know much about them. Uh, we talked about the encasement or the encounter suit. Part of the design of the encounter suit really is environmental control to keep Kosh alive, but its primary purpose is to hide the shape of Kosh. So you don't even get an, an idea of what Kosh's silhouette is like. And it's a good look. And I, I think the, um, mm -hmm. the irising 
opening on his on his headpiece helps add to the distinctiveness of the look. Yeah, uh, some of the memos that Straczynski had, which are collected in these books, they wanted to go very far out of their way to just make sure it's not a bunch of bumpy-headed aliens to feel distinct from Trek. Like it works, but if you know. He said maybe like one or two species in the entire series and preferably species that we just see in the background. Don't make it the major players. The major players should look very different. And that's an aesthetic I can definitely agree with. I mean, when you're doing a daily, I'm sorry, when you're doing a weekly show involving weekly alien races, then you get creative with, with the, what they're going to look like and everything. And maybe that creativity starts to wane after a while. So making an effort for our primary non-human species members to have very distinct looks to them. Not to not to fault Kira's nose ridge, but something more than a nose ridge is a, is a choice I can appreciate. Yeah, I think the main reason the Bajoran race just has the simple nose ridge is because the first Bajoran we saw was played by Michelle Forbes, who was remarkably attractive. So like, let's cover as little as possible, but still make her alien. <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't hurt their budget any that way, too. I, I think, you know, when it comes right. to getting these alien races and the designs they have, I think budget is always a factor. So, you know, you've got to work with that, too. And, and especially, you know, on top of the budget, you're, you're also, and, and the appearance, you're going to have the, as you started to mention with, with Peter Jurassic, or Jurassic, excuse me, the comfort level with it. You know, when with certain alien alien characters they come into the to you know do their daily filming and then they got to sit in a chair for three hours and get makeup put on them uh you know that that's going to cut into their availability to actually film scenes so that's that's a factor too when you have somebody like nana visitor who's going to be there you know on screen every single episode you you don't want to waste time having to have her you know be in makeup all the time because maybe she's not going to want to do this very long if that's the case which goes into one of our discussion points next week because two of our alien species get a bit of an overhaul in their look and their makeup design between now and, and next episode when they go to series. Yeah, Delenn in particular of the Mimbari species has the biggest overhaul. You will notice that if you pay close attention, the only time they refer to Delenn with a gender is when Sinclair is talking to someone through his, his link. So through the communicator in the back of his hand, that's when Delenn is referred to as a she. When they were filming this, the intent was to have Delenn present as male in the gathering. So with this makeup, and they were going to use voice modulation to make Mira Ferland's voice sound male, but they were not happy with how that turned out. So they dropped it and just made Delenn female from the start. But Delenn was going to present as male in the pilot here. And then... At some point between now and when the series ends, when the ser or the last time we see Delenn in the series, Delenn would have been female in every respect. So I guess the original plan was for Delenn to be transsexual for story-based reasons, and then that didn't happen. But it was also, or almost, a pretty landmark first. Yeah, that would have been... And there are other places in sci-fi stories around this time where they were starting to explore the idea of transgender races and how that can be a norm for people. And I was not old enough at the time to know if that was something that was being discussed more in, you know, cultural 
conversations or whatever. But it's nice to see that people were thinking about it way back in 1994. Not to go too far afield, but I appreciate when they do it, as as you said, Blaine, for story-based reasons, as opposed to, hey, look how progressive we are. I, and I've seen both in you know over the years. And when there's a story-based reason for it, it just feels so much more natural and it, it's not presented as hey, you know hey look at us or or you know if you don't go with this somehow you're you know you're bad or whatever i don't you know again i don't want to make it too much but i just like when there's a when there's an actual reason for what they do as opposed to trying to send the message we were talking about the history of the races and the centauri in particular and you know, the first time I watched this, I, d I didn't really twig to the fact that we really are just starting this whole ambassadorial collection thing. Like, I realized that there's, you know, script elements that I should have picked up on, but I didn't. So we had the war. We had the Earthman-Bari War 10 years ago. We don't know why they were at war. And we get vague hints here on why and how that war ended with the mysterious surrendering out of nowhere. And we'll come back to that because that kind of ties into the, the ending resolution stuff. But that happened. Now, the Narns, they had been an oppressed people living under the Centauri power. He describes himself as the youngest of the races. Does he just mean the youngest in the involvement of galactic politics? Because, I mean, you know, living races take scores of millennia to develop culture. Yeah, he is talking about the biological evolution. Okay. So the Narns became recognizably Narns more recently than humans became recognizably humans. It's a little bit of an odd thing to harp on, in my opinion. Like, okay, so they've only been Narns for 10,000 years instead of 50,000 years or 200,000 years, but still thousands of years is a long time. <laughs> It is, and it really it should be by counting generations, I think, is more meaningful. But yeah, that was their, the expedition to set it up. But I think his point was, okay, because he was, at that point, he was trying to negotiate a truce with the Minbari, blaming the Centauri for the assassination attempt that he was responsible for. So this was political maneuvering to ally himself with the species that seemed to be the oldest, which was known to have the most advanced technology. So it's more of a flattery line than... Yeah, more of a flattery line. And we will learn that big chunks of what we hear in that conversation are not true. Okay. And not just about accusing the Centauri. So, well, that kind of brings up... Jakar mentions the Grey Council in that. And I know that that's you know, a mystery and a plot point. That's just one of the things I remember from my last efforts to watch the show. And he describes the Great Council as a bunch of doddering old men. Uh, it kind of makes them sound like a bunch of hermits. But she gets, or they, get really, really upset at Jakar's mention and maybe insulting description of them. And Delenn is actually reaching for her little ring weapon before he even finishes saying what he's saying or really gets into what he's saying. So I don't know if that was just a weird filming choice or what, but, but yeah. So Grey Council is one of those things we should stick a pin in. And I don't know if we should say if his description is one of those things that's untrue or not, but I am curious. Now, just hitting on Jakar for a moment. Uh, 
he will forever be the one-armed man for me from uh, Harrison Ford's version of The Fugitive. And all I have to do is hear his voice, and it's it's just very, very distinctive. So that's that always jumps out at me. And I, I do, you know, he had uh, played parts in Star Trek as well. Yeah, I was going to say, he's yes. always Ambassador Tumbleluck for me. Uh, but 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 he will always be the one-armed man. <laughs> he's, I, I got Tumbleluck there too, but he'll be the one-armed man as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and you're right that it it doesn't matter how extensive the makeup is. When he speaks, he's one of those I-know-that-voice people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he, he is known as Ambassador Tomahawk to many. So I think we've covered everything then for the major races, with the exception of Kosh. Who is interesting because he's also a bit of a cipher in this. Yeah, he is a Vorlon, and all we really know about the Vorlon is that they go out of their way to make sure that people do not know much about the Vorlon. And... Yeah, they, but they do have quite the fleet. So uh, Ron Thornton was the special effects supervisor. He was incredibly proud of the scene at the end where the Vorlons are coming to take custody of Sinclair, thinking that he was responsible for trying to assassinate Kosh. And it's not a ship that comes out of the jump gate. It is a fleet. It's a pretty impressive series of shots. Yeah, the, Ron Thornton was particularly proud because that fleet broke the record previous set or previously set by Return of the Jedi for the most spaceships on screen at once. <laughs> I was going to say it might be easier where you just paint them on the screen instead of actually building them, but you do have to build the 3D models and you do have to actually program them to how they're going to move and everything. So it's a different kind of work. It's not necessarily less work. Particularly since Ron Thornton's model is actually to scale. A lot of the CGI at the time, they were doing condensed ones. So the sort of the size of the 3D space inside was was off when they were trying to use forced perspective. So forced perspective is common in Hollywood. I've actually been on the set for Central Perk in Friends. It's part of the Warner Brothers Studio tour, at least it was when I was there. And we don't realize how small that set is. The actors in the background had limits on how tall they were allowed to be, so you didn't realize that all those tables and chairs in the backgrounds were smaller than normal. And oh. the shorter people were seated further in the back. So Central Perk was not the size it was, and that's part of the reason they had such limited camera angles there. You'd see the same two or three camera angles to the entire run of Friends to hide that. And a lot of CGI models use the same idea to reduce processor power, but Thornton wouldn't do that. So when he was modeling Babylon 5, the station, the planet it's orbiting, its moon, and the rest of that solar system are modeled in a one-to-one scale. Interesting. So we're going to get some actually very realistic space physics when we see the Star Furies and their other uh, spaceships out there. I like the idea of the jump gate. Now, if we're going to be drawing similarities to Star Trek D Space Nine, the wormhole is probably an obvious one here, although conceptually similar, the use of it in the storyline is very, 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 very different. But just the idea that instead of ships randomly hyperspacing into space around, whatever technology they use for travel has to have a gate on the opposite end and so they are warping into the jump gate and that's how people arrive on the station so they're able to monitor that they're able to see when it's activating and probably have some sort of communication about who's coming through ahead of time but obviously that communication is not essential or can be tricked because when they're expecting one ship to come through they get an entire attack fleet but it's just it's just a different way of doing stuff and i I like it, and it's a good visual. Yeah, and just 
slight amendment. The larger ships can open jump gates on their own. That's how they're built. So Babylon okay. 5 has a jump gate that anyone can use, but yeah, they are pushing through into hyperspace, traveling at sublight speeds through hyperspace, and then coming out. So similar principle to the wormhole. But yeah, that that is the technology that is used, and it will be developed, and we will see things from the perspective of hyperspace in not too long. Yeah, so that Vorlon ship, the massive carrier, actually does have the ability to open its own jump gate. They use that one so that they wouldn't have to worry about the power drain and have the fleet deployed as they came out instead of coming through with a power drain after opening the jump gate and then deploying the fleet. So it's a technology with multiple applications. That's that's good. That's that's development. Yeah, and those limitations are relevant to stories we're going to see down the road. So they established the rules and parameters of the jump gates at the beginning, specifically to make sure that it would fit the stories that they wanted to tell in future seasons. There was so much more of that than I thought. All right, so... um I'm trying to think of major things. Now, we haven't really talked about Lita Alexander, but she's one of the people that leaves. She's a member of the PsyCorps, which I know that the PsyCorps is a thing. I like that they have, you know, telepaths and psi-sensitive people are so not uncommon. I don't know if common is the right word, but they're not uncommon that there are cultural norms and expectations about how she's going to function on the station as, you know, as a professional telepath. So this is an aspect of society that we do not have at all, but they have established in their human society. And she was, she was, she was a good performance. Yeah. Like I said, she's done a lot of stunt work. We've seen her in pretty much all the iterations of Star Trek that were on at this time. So she'd already been in next gen deep space nine Voyager. It might be hard to pick her out if you don't already know her from Babylon five, because most of the time, She's that security guard in front of the console that explodes, and then it's her stunt work as she's throwing herself across the bridge. Mm. I think Voyager, she has one speaking part, but she appears at least once, I think as many as five times in each of those series. In Jurassic Park, there is the scene where the little girl, you know, falls from the ceiling with the velociraptors below. That was the little girl's face digitally put on Pat Tolman's body. Oh, fun. Yeah, so she's got some very extensive stunt works, but it was her acting in House of the Dead that made GMS say, I want to work with her. And he figured, no, she's the the right fit. The bright red hair would be distinctiveness. She liked how large her eyes were for a telepath. Yeah, just scrolling through her stuff, she does have a lot of uncredited roles because she's just background or or stunt, like you said. Just a lot of things where she can get shot at and jump, probably. Yep. But I thought she did a good job. Um they they did a couple of bits with her that are sort of like predictable whenever they're in the conversation and he asks her for her ID, but she already holds it up in the middle of his sentence. And then later on, whenever she says, I just knew you were going to say that, those were like, okay, I guess you have to do stuff like that when you have a telepath person, but maybe you don't have to. <laughs> I really, really liked her face acting when Jakar is talking about mating with her to bring telepathy into the Narn genome. And I really wish that that exchange had ended with her getting some sort of barbarous line back at him. But still, her complete appallment at the entire conversation was was great to watch. Yeah, when he suggested she might have to be unconscious because he didn't know what her pleasure threshold was. It was apparently a memorable line because when Pat Tallman wrote her memoirs of her time on Babylon 5, it's called Pleasure Thresholds. <laughs> Paul, what are some things we haven't talked about that are sticking out in your mind? 
I guess for me, the biggest thing is as I was watching it and, and, you know, as we discussed before we started recording and a couple of times as we're going along is I just kept in my mind comparing this to Deep Space Nine. And Mm -hmm. I was trying to see in my mind, you know, where, where it was giving me the same kind of feelings and where it might just vary off of that a little bit. And I started off with, you know, with the station itself. So in in this, unless I, you know, unless I missed something, it seems like they've continued to build Babylon stations, and this is the fifth one, but the four four prior ones are no longer there. It it almost reminded me of the Monty Python thing where uh, the father was talking about the castle. You know, we built a castle and it fell in, it sunk into the mud. So we built another one, and uh, you know, he goes on and on with that. It almost felt like that to me, you know, Babylon 1 through 3 are destroyed, and Babylon 4 is just, we don't know what's happened to it, and now we're on Babylon 5. So it seems like a desperate attempt to maintain this particular area, or, the, you know, this, this strategic area, I guess. It reminded me of the, uh, the, the Torchwood conversation, the first episode of Torchwood, where they're like, this is Torchwood 3, Torchwood 1 was this, Torchwood 2 is stuck in a time of, I forget exactly what he said, but it kind of reminded me of that conversation. Right. Yeah, and I'm just grinning from ear to ear because there are, what you have just said, Paul, you have mentioned things that are going to be addressed in at least eight upcoming episodes. Oh, cool. We will find out exactly what happened to Babylon 4. We will find out exactly why they would not give up on the project. And we will find out in a little more detail, who was responsible for the destruction of the first right. three. Right, so, and I'm able to distinguish that from from Deep Space Nine, because in Deep Space Nine, it's a Cardassian, uh, you know, station that, that they've abandoned. So, you know, you have the Federation people coming in to take over this abandoned station that is totally alien to them. And I thought that was kind of a cool aspect, but I think this is a cool aspect as well. Uh, this one seems even more in its own way militaristic. But I don't know if it's going to play out that way. The characters, I do feel like, you know, you, you had certain aspects of the characters that, you know, they, they do fall in line, you know, and, and you're going to have certain paradigms to your, uh, you know, to your, to your ensemble cast, and you're going to have people who are playing standard roles on, on a drama of this sort. You know, you have your, your chief of security, and you have your chief of this and chief of that. And, uh, I, like I said, the, the guy who just stood out to me was, was Londo and he strikes me as the quark of this show. And I don't know that that's going to play out that way, but that's the way it started for me. So, you know, that, that was my big thing is that I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm just, you know, going back to DS9 because that's what I'm familiar with. The people in the news groups early on, when JNS was very interactive with the fan base, by the end of the first season, they're saying most of the show is great, but lose the clown because they were not happy with Londo. And by the time you get to the end of the series, more than one of them stepped forward and said, I am so glad you didn't listen to me because I was so very, very wrong. You were right when you said to trust me, there's a plan. Well, I also think he has a bit more likability and pathos at the onset than Quark had at the beginning. I think over the course of Quark's storyline, most of his pathos is in spite of himself more than actually, you know, part of who he is. Yeah, I I would say Londo does have a comparable story arc to someone on Deep Space Nine. <laughs> yeah, you're the at first blush, 
it would feel like Quark. And I don't think I can say who I think is actually closer without telegraphing yeah. too much of Londo's arc. But yeah, let's leave that. I will say that JMS made a conscious choice for the early episodes to have some of these characters play into tropes. And he did that specifically to break type later on and to counteract those expectations. And he does feel a lot like the Golducott kind of character. So you, you, you can read this script and then think about how you want to build the Space Nine show and having a character like Golducott seems, seems natural. I like how the very first thing we see from Jakar on this show is him whining and trying to weasel out of the rules. That was amusing, knowing what kind of character he is, at least in the first few episodes, rewatching and seeing that that's our first exposure to him made me smile. But yeah, so I guess we can kind of get into some of the um, the signs and portents, to coin a phrase, in this episode. Delenn, we ha- okay, we have not talked a lot about Delenn. We talked about the gender developments, but I really like Delenn from first watching. The only thing that's happened is I've watched this more is that other characters have come out more. But from my first viewing of this episode, Delenn always stood out to me as interesting, as an enigma that I want to know more about, a performance that I found intriguing. Okay, so the Minbari were our enemies in the war 10 years ago. And we don't know why they surrendered when they were just about to win. Jakar rants about that at one point. Why did you surrender? You had Earth on their knees. And Delenn just says, we had our reasons. But through all of the things that are put together in this episode, their reasons have a whole lot to do with something about Jeff Sinclair. And so Delenn makes it a point to help Sinclair in ways that feel like maybe they're going beyond their mandate. That they don't just have a professional obligation on this station, they also have a personal investment in things that are going on here in and around Sinclair. Are those vibes that you got, Paul, as somebody else who's watching this without knowing what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely got similar feelings. I, I I liked the distinction, I guess, in my mind of knowing that this is going to go on and that it's not you know, I, I couldn't view this as just a TV, standalone TV movie. I just wasn't able to do that in my mind. And knowing that it's going to go on, I was looking for things of that nature that, you know, there's more there than meets the eye. And and what are we going to see as time goes on? And I thought there was a lot of that as this went on in the show. There was a lot of things where it's like, okay, you know, to, to steal Blaine's line, let's put a pin in that and get back to it later. And And that was, you know, the... There, there were many aspects like that. So, yeah, I definitely agree with you on it. And the the scene with the the stone garden and just the conversations about that, giving him the data files. Talking about the stone garden? Mm-hmm. One of the things <laughs> to put go. a pin in <laughs> is how Delenn says, you know, you drop one stone and everything changes, but when the angle changes, there are two stones there. That's not a mistake. That is significant. Huh. Okay. I saw the ripple effects around both and just figured it was, um, you know, a description of it, but interesting. Okay. That was, a, that was a deliberate storytelling choice. Alrighty. And the Minbari at the end, who has been at least behind, I'm sorry, either, either behind or at least the instrumental force in making all of this happen in this episode, 
with the attack and everything, says that Jeff Sinclair has a hole in his head. And not only is that an intriguing line, but I do remember from my previous watching of the first season that that is a major, major element of the storytelling surrounding Sinclair in this first season. So whatever that means, we are we are definitely pinning that. Yeah, put a pin in that. And I think the other piece that is worth putting a pin in, I can't go into too much detail now because I think that will telegraph too much. But earlier I mentioned that there was a plot point that was originally going to play out in season five that ended up playing out a couple seasons sooner. It is related to uh, someone who put the Mimbari culture on the path it's on. That's a character named Valen. And if you listen very carefully, when a lot of the aliens are talking and you hear the alien languages, one of the non-Minbari members of the station actually says Valen. And it will turn out to be important when and where that character, right? when you hear Valen from that character. I won't I will come back to that and say, okay, this is the exact moment and the character, mm-hmm. but not until we cover the episode where it's properly revealed. Cause I think that would just telegraph too much, but that was one I was on my fourth time through when I picked up on it because I was reading the news groups and someone had picked up on it in a post that came out in 1998. They said, Oh my God, did I just hear what I thought I heard? And Jameis said, yes, it was there from the start. So that was like Easter egg level dropping of stuff that ended up being intentional and playing out later. Interesting. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing that's very easy to miss because it's an alien language. There's no context, but those two syllables are there in that dialogue. So speaking of aliens, we have this station where we have five different species from five different planets. And we have this, in, this, this interstellar, you know, crossroads and people from other Planets are going to be coming and going through the through the storylines. And yet, whenever humans are talking, it's humans and aliens. Like, it's still very, very ethnocentric. It is an Earth Central station at this point. So it is run by Earth's military. And the aliens are there as guests. Okay. So, yeah, they are using alien as kind of a shorthand. So there's the humans and the aliens. But a lot of times when they talk about the alien sector, what they mean are... Um, habitats that could not support human life. So Londo, Jakar, and Dolan don't live in the alien sector. I mean, they've got their ambassadors, and they will. We'll see more of this as it goes on, because as the series develops, we are going to get a bigger ensemble cast. So each of our ambassadors will end up with a an assistant coming up. One character we hadn't mentioned, and I only mentioned because I'm looking over my notes to see what I haven't brought up yet, and she seems to be connected, is Carolyn. Carolyn is Sinclair's old friend who comes and, you know, there's there's a romantic pairing between them. She seems to know Delenn and seemingly on a personal level because she feels like she has the right to sort of, you know, confront her on some things. Uh, so I'm just curious, is she a one-off character or will we see her again? The original intent was for her to be uh, Sinclair's regular girlfriend who would come and go from the station. And yeah, she's familiar with Delenn and other members. In the original script, when Dr. Kyle uh, contacts Sinclair through that vid phone to say that he's got confirmation of poison, 
Sinclair originally has it audio only, and Kyle's like, oh, I, I'm not seeing your picture. He's like, uh, yeah, there's a problem with the camera. And there's a beat, and Dr. Kyle went, hi, Carolyn. And then they, they talk and eventually turns the camera on. They cut to that to get to the, the more dramatic beat sooner. So that was her intent, but she is one of the characters who doesn't return. So okay. when she's not going to be ignored. It's one of the things I like about this. I think in the whole run of the series, only one character is actually recast. And it's someone with pretty heavy alien makeup. So it's easier to do that. For the most part, if the performer leaves, then it's a different character. So we will see a different girlfriend for Sinclair down the road. And it's actually in that conversation that we confirm that uh, your suspicion that Sinclair and Garibaldi knew each other prior to the Babylon 5 assignment because Garibaldi recognizes the ex-girlfriend and goes to tell Sinclair. But we find out later in that episode, Sinclair and that ex had not seen each other recently enough for her to even know that he was commander of Babylon 5 and had she known she wouldn't have come. Gotcha. And during that conversation, she says, oh, I heard you were with Carolyn Sykes. And it didn't work out for because of reasons that were set up here, where she wanted him to quit Earth Force and go into private business with her, which she was asking him to do as she left the station at the end. And you could see how between two real people, that would be a conversation that might become a point of tension on the relationship, depending upon how badly she really wants him to leave. And of course, he's not willing to do so because, you know, protagonist. But you could see how that could become a, a point of tension that would wear the relationship down. It is. So when they release it saying, oh, yeah, it happened in that the year between the pilot mid and the firing line, because they're treating it as real time. It's not the next week. Okay. He just says, yeah, it was, yeah, that we were, but then it ended because of this about this many months ago. And it just fits really nicely. One of my last notes here is at the end of this uh, show, whenever all of the action is coming to a head, Sinclair and Garibaldi are both trapped on the wrong side of the door in the alien sector. And Delenn just shows up and lifts Garibaldi on their shoulders. And it's all shot from the back, so I'm pretty sure they have an actual male actor to do that there. but. With Delenn's visual design having broader shoulders and then the display of strength in the character there, that those things do reinforce the idea that the character is starting out with more male characteristics with, you know, like you said, the intention of slowly having them change over time. But that's one of those things that I hadn't realized would play into that when I first watched that I noticed this time around. So yeah, what a... What else do we have on our thoughts? Because I've I've covered most of my notes, other than just little little tidbits that I noticed along the way. Like, <laughs> so so Garibaldi, I think Sinclair asks him why he's not working with Lita, and he's like, "I don't trust telepaths. I never have, never will. I can never forgive them <laughs> for the death of my boy." <laughs> but not really. No. Yeah. They're- the the way telepaths work in the society is definitely a big part of how things play out in this series and the way others react to them as well. All right. Any other thoughts before we start wrapping up? I I think I'm 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 ready to start going with the Jaws scale since this is also an Is It Jaws episode. So Paul, do you want to take us through the Jaws scale and give us your rating? 
Okay, as I said at the beginning of the show, you know, the scale is based on Jaws 1 through 4, with Jaws being a classic, Jaws 2 being really good, worthy of revisiting, Jaws 3 being, you know, an okay movie or show, and Jaws 4 being a bad movie or show. I think we can, right off the bat, without even thinking about it, take number 4 right off the stage. This is not definitely not a bad show in, in, in any way, shape, or form. I don't think, at least on a first viewing, that it rates as a classic. So then I start falling into, well, is it a show that's, you know, just acceptable and I sat through it and now I'll move on? Or is it a show where I'm intrigued by it and I want to see where it's going to go? And when I learn where it's going to go, I'm going to want to go back and revisit this to see what I missed the first time that I really, you know, went through it. And I think, in my mind, there's, there's no question at all. It's it's the latter, so I'm putting it as a Jaws 2. And John, you should go next. I'll go last. So, I'll be honest here up front. I am going into Babylon 5 with the understanding that it be that it is this, you know, large work that a lot of people appreciate, and there's a lot of things that it does that people have liked. I don't see a whole lot of elements just in this first pilot and in some of the episodes of the first season that scream at me, this is a show I definitely want to be watching. And, you know, if I'm being frank and I'm being and I'm doing the rating thing here, I don't know that this episode would have had me coming back. So I'm going to be a little bit strict at now in the conversation. I like to like things. I like to bring out stuff that I find intriguing. I like to bring out stuff that I that I enjoy. And so I don't spend a whole lot of time harping on things that I don't enjoy in the discussion. But there is, I don't know, there's just this kind of a tone to it and everything that I, I don't know. <laughs> but, so all that to say, I do find myself torn between a Jaws 2 and Jaws 3 rating because there are elements that I know are going to grow. And those are the things that I'm glomming on to. But if I were just to think about how I felt about this when I first watched it, I think I'm going to be leaning more on a Jaws 3 rating. I'm sorry. I was just going to jump in and, tell, and say I do agree with some aspects of what you're saying and that I think part of my rating is based on the fact that I know it went on and I know that there were seasons and I know how highly regarded it is. And that makes me more interested in seeing. So... If I were to take it from the perspective of this was a TV movie that was on last night and I have no idea if it's going any further, yeah, I, I, I don't I, I don't really disagree with your thought process at all. Well, last time you and I did Is It Jaws, I ended up rating one step below you and then regretting it later. So, because um, we, did, <laughs> we did A Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, I, I was a little bit critical on it in, in, the, in the final report that Maybe I should have been later because I do really, really love that movie. But, um, but yeah, for here, for this, just the gathering on its own as a production, especially with a one year gap after it, there's a lot of room for growth. So I'm going to say three. I, I would say that on first viewing the gathering and frankly, a lot of season one for me is a Jaws three. Having now watched the entire series the other movies, the other spin-offs, so really every live-action Babylon 5 product, I'm seeing pieces of the puzzle that I didn't know were there. I've said it before, Babylon 5 is not just a puzzle, it's a mosaic. 
each episode stands alone. And by the time season one is done, you don't have enough of the big picture to know that there even is a big picture. So yeah, first time through, this definitely would have been a Jaws 3. Rewatching it as I have now afterwards and recognizing how much really is here setting up things that we don't know are being set up. And it's being foreshadowed so subtly you don't even know it's foreshadowing. It has raised in my esteem to the point where The Gathering is a weak Jaws 2. If people are sitting there going, oh, is it worth continuing after this discussion if that's where the hosts of the Babylon 5 podcast are rating it? Just, you know, that Jaws 3 or the Jaws 2? I will also say that probably about 90% of seasons 3 and 4 are going to be Jaws 1 for me. Not that we'll continue doing the Jaws scale when we're not on Is It Jaws. But that is what's coming. To be fair, I don't really love Emissary that much either. And Deep Space Nine is my favorite Star Trek of the pre-modern era. Like, going up through Enterprise, if I, were to, if I were to rank those five series, Deep Space Nine is my favorite Star Trek series. Emissary is not that high-ranked of an episode for me. So things can start off a little weaker and find their feet and grow stronger, and that's what I am hoping and expecting from this show. Yeah, I would say the fact that Babylon 5 really comes into its own in Season 2 puts it at least a year ahead of most Star Trek series. <laughs> yeah, season two of Next Gen, season two of Deep Space Nine. <laughs> Those are not strong seasons. Season two of the classic, though, is the best season of that show for me. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we can... Well, well, people have heard my thoughts on Deep Space Nine. I think it started with Chris Sarandon's guest spot was the first time that you guys asked me to Give my thoughts on the science and then And it's snow it's snowballed since then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, now at this point we'd we we feel like we'd be remiss if we did a show without having your opinion on it. Well uh, thankfully so far your your other plans have always stuck to shows I've got legal access to. So they're coming. Although by January twenty twenty four, do you want to talk about what the listen to the prophets and the original Listen to the Prophets cast, for the most part, with one notable and memorable exception, have moved on to Toon Trek, which is what is coming out live at the time of this recording. And, uh, Paul, do you want to mention what is probably going to have completed yeah, sure. <laughs> by the we, time we, people we, hear this? We, well, we certainly should be through, uh, <laughs> through, through a lot of stuff at that point. Uh, but our plans are that when, once we finish Toon Trek, which is rapidly approaching as we record this, and then we're going to do the 1960s, I'm going to call it a cult show because I don't think the pop, you know, that the general population is all that enamored with it, but I think the geek population is. So we're going to do the, the prisoner, which is a one season show. So by 2024, yeah, we may be done with that too. And then we'll see what we're going to move on to at that point. But if you're listening to this and you're intrigued and didn't know that we did that, go back, look at, listen to those episodes, because I'm sure they were good, even though we haven't recorded them yet. All right. As we're wrapping up here and looking at our agenda, we sort of did the whole giving form to the dream as we went along, just like talking about all the different tidbits from this episode. Now, this pilot episode, I'm sure Straczynski was sprinkling in as much as he could throughout. So maybe it'll be easier to do summative um, recaps of everything on future episodes of things that are going to, you know, point to the future. But our last best hope, our, our standout character or character moment for this sh uh, gathering episode, what did we think? 
Paul? For me, like I said, the one who I found myself most intrigued by was Lando. I just went, <laughs> and it's, it's such a, a variation on my anticipation because, you know, as we both mentioned that, you know, looking at him, the look almost appeared a little silly and, and I wasn't sure that I would have any interest in it whatsoever. Uh, and yet when he was on the screen, I, I just kind of felt glued to him and, and that he, you know, that he was fascinating. So he was, he was my most intriguing character coming into this. And he's the one who I'm most interested in seeing how they develop him as it goes along. What do you think, Blaine? On my first time viewing, coming in cold, uh, it was Garibaldi, partly because of the way he sold his beep beep joke. Because <laughs> at the end, when they, they know the evidence against Shakar is circumstantial, so they cannot prove he was involved. Captain Sinclair, or Commander Sinclair convinces Jakar that he's been implanted with a nanotechnology bug that will allow them to track his position anywhere. So just as he's fuming with that and leaves, we see Garibaldi come by and go beep beep just to rub his nose in it because he knows what Sinclair is doing. That part was scripted. The conversation afterwards wasn't in the original script, although it was written in for the shooting, but they developed that on set. And that's something that I loved afterwards when you find out that, yeah, there really was no tracker because if there was a tracker, they would find it, they would get rid of it, and then it would be done. But if they've convinced him that he's got a, a masked nanotechnology tracker somewhere, they're going to keep looking and keep looking and keep looking. And that's the point, is to make Jakar go through all that. And that's when Garibaldi says, I love my job. <laughs> so that was the standout on the first viewing. But now having seen how the whole thing plays out, the... The performance by Peter Jurisic as Londo, the subtlety where he knew enough of the first season arc, if not the full five-year arc, that he is playing shades that I'm only picking up on now that I'm doing it. How much of that is the effect? I forget the name of the effect, but one of the early things they found in film is they had an actor with a blank expression, and they asked audiences how the acting was. They said, oh, it's wonderful. Right. They they got that he was hungry or mad or sad because they were superimposing. You know, they'd show a shot of something happening that would provoke an emotional response in the audience, put in the actor with a blank expression, and then go back to the thing that the audience had the reaction to to make them think that the actor was seeing it, and the audience was projecting their own emotions on him. So some of that could be projection because Jim S. also liked to play things very tight. He says that when this series came out, there were four people on the planet who knew the detailed outline, and that was three more than he was truly comfortable with. But there were people who knew more. So, And um, two of the actors, Bill Mooney, who will be joining the show in the next few episodes, and Peter Jurisic were two that he had learned. They were held the spoiler sacrosanct, but they just, right. When they went to JMS, they didn't say, okay, what does my character know that I don't? He was more how does my character really feel about this? And how does my character want people to feel about this? So gotcha. that they couldn't really tip their hands. Because that's some, the actress who played Takashima, Tamara Tomlin, I think, she had no idea that her character was involved in this plot. And she's mentioned that in interviews, that she was surprised to hear it later and kind of wished that she'd stuck with the show to, to play through that. But yeah, JMS didn't want her revealing it because he his, he's afraid that sometimes if the actor knows the character has a secret then their performance would tip off other people in the room that there's a secret there. Right, right. Whereas the actual person would be very discreet about it. Yeah. 
So I'm not changing my person from first viewing to now, but there was definitely a runner-up on subsequent viewings. I said earlier, and I still stand by, that uh, I completely am fascinated and intrigued by Delenn. I think that there's a lot going on there that drew me in. I wanted to know more, and when I saw her performance as that character, I was just, you know, really absorbed. So, Delenn is my last best hope in the episode. However, you know, when you rewatch stuff and rewatch stuff, stuff that didn't stand out at you at first, you know, tends to get your attention more. Things that you didn't like as much, you start to like more over time, maybe because you understand it more, you appreciate more for whatever reason. But for all of those reasons, I'm going to second the Londo appreciation because I really didn't care much for him on first viewing. And I just really, and I don't know, you know, a lot of times when I'm watching something, I'm not paying as close attention to the screen as I might in the visuals. I, I do a lot of listening to shows while doing some other task. But watching him perform and watching him say, describe the things about his past and his people and everything, there was just a lot going on. And he's he's in a situation where, you know, his people are not what they once were. And that very fact is a big element of their culture. And so he's forced to live this life and he spends a lot of his time doing things that are very shallow and not really that motivational as a character, as a person. But then whenever he like takes time to say, so yeah, but this is where I am and this is who I am. And it's just, there's a lot more going on there that I definitely appreciate. So Delenn is still my last best hope, but Londo is my penultimate hope. All right. So just as we wrap up, I just want to throw out one more comment to those who found this through Paul's work on Listen to the Prophets, as well as others. But Paul's the one that's on there every week of the three of us. I will uh, agree with John that Deep Space Nine is my favorite Star Trek, hands down. At least of those shows that are completed. Of the new shows on Paramount+, Plus, I think Prodigy might be a contender. But it's the only one of that batch that might be a contender at this point which is being recorded four days before their premiere of Strange New Worlds. So just to put that caveat out there. So yes, Deep Space Nine is my favorite of the Star Treks. I think Babylon 5 is better. Okay, so, that says a lot. Um, yeah, it, it does. And I don't... There is an attitude out there that there's an adversarial approach, just like Star Trek versus Star Wars. They are different beasts. So while I believe that, like I said... The DS9 writers were getting some notes from people who knew the JMS script. I think the actual credited writers had no knowledge of his five-year plan and were doing their own thing with it. So at, at best, the similarities of like the two Alfred Hitchcock versions of The Man Who Knew Too Much, where, you know, Hitch, I don't know if you know, he made one version in England. And then when he was in America, he had one more film he had to do under contractual obligation for one studio, and he wanted to wrap that up before he could move on to his new contract with the next studio. So he took the writing partner that he had in America and said, hey, have you seen The Man Who Knew Too Much from that I made in Britain? 
The writer said no. He said beautiful, gave him a three-sentence breakdown, and said do your own thing with it. Don't go near it. This is similar. So there are enough superficial similarities that I can see it to the point that in the original draft of the pilot for for Babylon 5 here, The Gathering, the assassin did not have a changeling net. They did not have this technology that allowed them to holographically present as others. It was an outright shapeshifter. And then when Paramount announced who was going to be in the cast, announced that Odo, the shapeshifter, was going to be on the station, then Warner came to them and said, yeah, do something different. We don't want to be compared too much. So it would have played out a little bit better had The Gathering hit its original broadcast intended date of November 92 instead of February 93 in terms of that comparison. JMS does say the delay made the show better because it was production and stuff. They were just able to do a better job. But yeah, there are the, the superficial similarities, but you are allowed to like both. Yeah. And going into this, I expected there to be some some comparison discussions here at the pilot when we had the premises, but my my impression is that the shows quickly became very, very different beasts. Starting at a similar point does not mean the shows are similar. But yeah, so as we're wrapping up here, uh, Paul, we did mention the shows that you're doing earlier. Is there anything else you want to pimp before we wrap up? If you're listening to me, in addition to Is It Yours and, and the what will be the Prisoner podcast, which I don't even know what the name of it's going to be, I am uh, the regular host on Back to the Bins, along with Scott Gardner and uh, Bill Robinson, and we review old comics on that show. So if you're a comic book fan, uh, then absolutely seek us out if you don't have, don't already subscribe. The other thing I'm just going to touch on really quick before we finish this up is, based on what Blaine was just saying, it, it was reminiscent to me of an episode of Cheers, where the episode's actually taking place in the main office, but... Every once in a while, the door opens up and you hear what's going on. And uh, two people are arguing, and then Rebecca comes outside, and uh, she has to make peace between them. And she says, there's enough room in the bar for people who like the Adams Family and the Monsters. Uh, <laughs> and I, I just feel like that's, you know, you're allowed to like Babylon 5 and Deep Space Nine. It's okay. It's okay. Now, Blaine, you have your podcast life planned out way in advance. So is there anything else going on in 2024? that you want to mention? Uh, Bedtime in the Public Domain and 99 Years 100 Films will be going. So Bedtime in the Public Domain, I slowed down with the birth of our child, but that one I am reading a chapter at a time of books in the public domain. I tend to alternate between children's books and other classic detective or sci-fi. And 99 Years 100 Films, Trey Hooks and I are going through every movie that has won the Academy Award for Best Picture to date. You can, if you tune into that, you can hear John join us for Marty and Paul joined us for Gone with the Wind and West Side Story. It's the original West Side Story. And then there's also an old time radio show, which is very minimal interaction by me. I will talk about why I picked the next show to run before it comes out. We've done Dimension X, X minus one. And at the time of this recording, we are in Duffy's Tavern. And I haven't decided which show we'll be doing after that, but that actually, come to think of it, should be coming out right around the time this does. So uh, Duffy's Tavern is what I did because I found out it was created by the father of the creator of Cheers, and Duffy's Tavern is about uh, a bar. And you could see a lot of the Duffy's Tavern DNA in that first season of Cheers, where 
some random customer walking in was the inciting incident for a lot of that first season. That was the Duffy's Tavern format. All right. Well, I, uh, as this comes out last summer, I wrapped up my Superman in Crisis podcast and launched my weekly dose of Superman. So that should be going through its first year. And um, every episode, I'll be talking about a Golden Age Superman story and the orders that those were released and a randomly selected Superman story from the 50 plus years of Superman that I've read. So um, every episode is a weekly dose of early Superman and something else from his history as I continue my read through of every Superman comic ever and podcast about various ones along the way. So that is over at John Reed's Comics, and the feed is probably no longer called Superman in Crisis. It's probably called Weekly Dose of Superman now, but that's uh, uh, something that future me will know a lot more about. All right, so I guess that wraps us up. So be here next week as we dive into the very first episode of the first season of Babylon 5, Midnight on the Firing Line. Thank you very much, Paul, for being with us today. Hope you had a good time and hope you'll continue watching Babylon 5. Absolutely. I had a good time. I appreciate you guys asking me to be on. Thank you again for that. And I'm planning on coming along for the ride. I'll watch them as you do them. All right. Okay, Blaine. How do we want to end this thing? So I think we will just reach out to our listeners and say thank you for listening and good eating to you. See you next week.